Turn in your Bibles. I want to get right into this today. I got a lot to cover and I want to give you every bit of it. Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 26. Just six verses today, but there's a lot of information we're going to be learning from these verses. I read Isaiah 53 earlier, um, and certainly it was with reason. Is at the heart of what Jesus Christ, what God himself was setting out to accomplish in Christ Jesus. This is the one other passage that will follow right alongside with Isaiah 53 in terms of major, major, major importance. You learn these two passages, you learn the gospel. You learn the message of the cross. You learn the plan of salvation, the, the plan of redemption. Amen. Everybody has it? Romans chapter 3. Okay, now bow your heads with me once again. We're going to pray for this message. Father, thank you so much for this time in your presence. I love you for it, Lord God. I praise you for it, Lord God, this morning. I thank you for this opportunity to be standing in front of your people. To talk about you. This is your word, Lord God. Pray that you continue to sanctify my heart as I consider what you've revealed to me in secret. Certainly give me the wisdom, Father God, to convey it now publicly. After so many hours of studying uh, this past week. Father, we need to hear from you this morning. We thank you so much for the life substance of your word. I thank you so much for this passage. For what it means to me, what it means in general. Thank you so much, Lord God, for what you did for us at the cross. Affording us the opportunity to enjoy salvation this side of heaven. Father, these things we praise you with. In Jesus' name and God's people say, Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. If you have it, say amen. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. May God has blessings, blessings to the reading of his word. Thank you, Jesus. Today we are going to get into some information that is deeper than normal. When you think about it, when you think about Christianity, when you think in terms of what we know, what we are acquainted with, for the most part, not just here in Norwalk, but the body of Christ throughout the entire world, for the most part, we are simply acquainted with shallow things concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. And certainly, um, it is quite common that most believers are not acquainted with the deep things concerning what has made Salvation, a reality in the first place. Most of us are acquainted with Jesus Christ as Lord, right? As Savior, yes and amen. I don't want to go to hell. I want to, I want to go to heaven one day. Therefore, I'm going to go to church. And that's almost the limit of what we understand concerning what God actually set out to accomplish in Christ Jesus. This one particular passage, if you want to take some notes, I do have all oh, this. Okay, there we go. I do, have, I do have a PowerPoint today, but please, if you want to take some notes, take some notes. There's, this is a very, very significant passage. The question is, what do we know about how God actually made salvation available to us? What do we know beyond Jesus as Savior? What do we know beyond the movies that we have seen depicting, depicting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. What, what, what do we know personally? Because when, you come, when it comes down to it, what we know from the Word of God as an individual determines whether you and I are going to be rooted and grounded in the Word of God or not. 
And if we're not rooted and grounded in the Word of God, it's going to determine or have an effect on our stability. Isn't that true? This passage, if you will, it gets into what some theologians refer to as deep theology. Deep theology. What we talked about before, let's just summarize extremely briefly, really short, in terms of what we've been talking about so far from this one particular passage. If you consider Romans chapter 3, verse 10, you can feel free to look it up. Paul the Apostle stated, there is none righteous, no, not one. So up until this point in this series of studies from the book of Romans, we have learned that Paul the Apostle was laying out the argument to the best of his ability, or rather, I should say, to the best of Christ's ability within him. He was confronted by, if you will, by religious Jewish scoffers. And some had the belief that you can be good enough to enter heaven. Or approved by God. Or validated by God. Some had the belief or the notion that you can actually be religious enough to be validated by God. Approved by God. Religious enough to actually make it into heaven one day. And Paul the Apostle, he stamped out that argument. You cannot be good enough. You cannot be religious enough. Salvation is required in Christ Jesus. That's why we read that one particular verse, Romans 3.10. There is none righteous, no, not one. So the bottom line concerning that point is that mankind is in trouble. Mankind is in trouble. Is it true that most people who walk this planet are without salvation? Is that safe to say? I think so. Very much so. The numbers are in the billions. In the untold. Billions, at least oh, oh, clearly, in my mind, over 7 billion people on the planet who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But there is good news. There is good news. Paul the Apostle makes a break in this one particular chapter. He begins a new topic, a new subject matter, if you will, beginning with verse 21, the one we just finished reading. He talked about condemnation as a result of not knowing Jesus. Now, now he begins to lay out the wonder, the beauty, the glory that exists for every single one of us who take the time to accept Jesus Christ into our hearts as Lord and Savior. That's good news today. Amen, church? Today we're going to talk about the great accomplishment at the cross and answer the question of how we can be saved. We need to know that. How we can be saved. And it's a vital point because many people that walk this planet today believe that it is sufficient. Or what is sufficient to be saved is just to simply believe that there is a God. And that's it. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to familiarize yourself with anything else. Acquaint yourself with anything else. Believe that there is a God in the heavens. Believe that there's a God who loves you. And that is it. And one day you're going to get to heaven. How many funerals have you gone to where the priest, the pastor, whomever, declared all the deceased as individuals who made it into heaven? How many of those? Right? And you're sitting there, dressed in black, and you're saying to yourself, I know he's not in heaven. Huh? <laughs> right? I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just simply trying to prove a point. Right? We declare everybody to be saved, and that's just not true. There's a particular process that we must go through. So, look at verse 21. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, which means revealed. It says the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. There are two, two things that are mentioned here, if you're taking notes. And I do have it up on the screen. Number one, Paul the Apostle is conveying to his audience, that is you and I as well, that salvation apart from the works of the law, salvation apart from the works of the law, has been revealed to mankind. And number two, that the Old Testament actually took the time that God himself, in writing through the prophets the entirety of the Old Testament, he actually predicted this wonderful truth in Christ Jesus. This wonderful truth that grace would be manifested. That grace would be 
um, revealed to all of mankind, and then we would have the opportunity to be clothed with the righteousness of God. Concerning this first point, salvation apart from the law. Write down this word, make a mental note, mental note of what you see up on the screen. The fancy, the fancy theological term is imputation. You see it up on the left? Imputation. And it means that God has bestowed His righteousness upon us. And the idea is that we have been clothed. Listen to this. The idea is that we have been clothed with God's righteousness apart from the works of the law. And that as such, I no longer have to work my way into heaven. I no longer have to be ritualistic, ceremonious, or religious in any way, shape, or form to be validated by God. The merit is solely based on what Jesus Christ accomplished for us at the cross. That's it. Amen. Bottom line. Se acabó. That's the bottom line. To know Christ is to know salvation. And there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And this one particular idea, this concept, imputation, is connected with, turn over a couple of pages to Romans chapter 1. Because I want you to see this. This word, imputation, is connected with Romans 1, 16 through 17, which is a vital, vital, vital message. It's actually the theme of the entirety of the book of Romans. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, or from faith for faith, as some of your versions may read. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Can you see it? Can you see how God has made righteousness available to us through Jesus Christ himself? No longer do we have to work. There are some Christian sects, some denominations. S-E-C-T-S. Sects. Can't pronounce that too well. We actually believe their, enti- their, their entire theological systematic is based on a system of works. I gotta go to church X amount of times a week. I have to pray X amount of times a week. I have to read the Bible X amount. I gotta get together with certain people. I gotta knock on certain doors. That's not Jehovah's Witness only. There's certain Christian denominations that actually subscribe to that. It's false. It's not Bible. We cannot be saved on our own merit. I do work today. I do knock on doors, quite literally, too. But I don't do it to be saved. I do it because I am saved. And there's a huge difference between the two. Amen, somebody. Just think about that. Think about your place in the kingdom of God today. Make sure you shrug off, you denounce, you dismiss. You shake off you any ideology that you have come to believe in. That has sort of captivated your mind and made you believe that you have to do certain things to earn your place in heaven. That you have to do certain things to earn your approval, the approval of God. It's just not so. So that, does that mean there is no cost to salvation? Trick question. No, there is no cost to earn salvation, right? Because it's a free gift. But think in terms of the cost Think in terms of repentance and how that is, in fact, a cost in and of itself. It's not to earn salvation in no way, shape, or form. But think in terms of the version of Christianity that we have. Or rather, the version of the gospel that we have in, in society today. It's a blue sky message. It's a Joe Osteen message. Oh, did I? Did I just? Oh, that's... That's not in my notes. That name wasn't in my notes. Joe Olsteen. It's a joke. It went right over you, right? We have a blue sky message that exists in the body of Christ today. It's a message that is void of repentance. Just come to church. Stay as you are. And everything is going to be okay. Just come to church. Believe there is of God. And He's going to take care of you. And everything is going to be okay. Now, God is love, yes, but God is also a consuming fire, and God judges sin. 
And it is possible to come to church and to sit in the pew for the rest of our lives without ever coming to faith in Christ because of missing what I refer to as the, this, this missing element of Christendom, which is the, the lack of the message of repentance. Look at, I want you to turn with me because I want you to follow along with me. Turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Quickly. I want you to see this with your own eyes. I actually shared this with you once before, but I want you to see it again. Repetition is good for the soul. Amen. Mark 8, 34. So the scenario is that Jesus Christ has drawn a mass of people. He's got his disciples with him, but he's also got a large crowd with him. He was performing a lot of miracles. The people are there to see him, to hear him. Many wanted to just simply take advantage of him. But he had a very, very important message for them to hear. What's that verse say? He says, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. It's a very extreme thing that Jesus Christ was laying out. And that is, in and of itself, it's a message of repentance. He was drawing the people to him for salvation. And he says, if you want to come after me to be saved, you have to deny yourself. Which means that you have to recognize your sin. You have to recognize who you are apart from me. And then you got to make a decision. You gotta take up your cross. What does that mean? You gotta die. It was the instrument by which Jesus Christ died. He died on an old rugged cross. It represents death, not salvation. It represents death. Jesus died on the old rugged cross for a reason. He was a sacrifice. We're gonna get into that in a few moments. But the cross represents death. When Jesus Christ says, I want you to take up your cross, is that he, he wants us, in the same way that he was predicting his death by mentioning the cross, he wants us to realize that we must die in order to earn salvation. Therefore, in that sense, salvation is not free. Only in that sense. Don't misinterpret what I just said. We know that grace is the most wonderful thing. I'm talking about two separate things here. I'm talking about that cost. It's going to cost us everything. We've got to surrender ourselves. We cannot be, salvation is not about being perfect. That's not what I'm saying. But it is about dying to self. We'll never be perfect this side of heaven. But if you die to self, if you know in your heart that you've given yourself over to Jesus Christ, that your heart belongs to Him, that your soul belongs, your life belongs to Him, we will see each other in heaven one day. Regardless of how difficult it is to live out Christianity. Because Christianity is difficult to live out. Second point. Concerning this one voice. This one, one verse. I'm changing my words up. The, look at the verse. Verse 21. It says, the law and the prophets are witnesses to Jesus. The law and the prophets are witnesses to Jesus. So Paul the Apostle makes this statement concerning the righteousness of God becoming available <coughs> The righteousness of God becoming available to you and I. Paul said that. Referring to the wonderful work that Jesus Christ accomplished for you and I. But it wasn't just a blanket statement where people had to just simply agree with or believe in without any substance whatsoever from the word itself, from the Bible itself. Because the Bible presents a lot of substance. It's not about blind faith. The Bible gives us a lot of examples that we can use as a witness, quote-unquote, right? So that we can sink our teeth into the reality of what God has offered to us in Christ Jesus. There's a lot of meat, if you will, in the Bible concerning this topic. Look at some of the verses with me. I got them up on your screen. And by the way, this, this simply means that, that Christ was thoroughly spoken of throughout the entirety of the Bible. When Jesus Christ took the time to converse with, to dialogue with, the Jewish community, as well as everybody else who came out to see him, he was validating himself in so many different ways, on so many different levels. And we're going to see that right now. He was thoroughly spoken of throughout the entire Old Testament. 
before he was revealed, before he manifested himself in the New Testament. And all of these things serve as evidence for his existence and his plans of redemption for mankind. John 5.16. Turn there with me. You there? John 5.16-18. through 18. The theme here is the Jews, they raised up a charge against Jesus Christ. And, the, and this is what it says. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was, his, was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That was the charge, right? He's performing these miracles, he's making these statements, and they were trying to convict him of blasphemy. Let's move on. Look at verses, same chapter, John chapter 5, verses 31 through 35. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ takes his time here to point to John the Baptist as a witness. They didn't want to accept his testimony, but he points to, now he, Jesus points to John the Baptist and says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. The entire nation of Israel received John the Baptist. The entire nation, because there were so many verses, so many predictions that John the Baptist actually fulfilled. He connected many dots, or rather they connected many dots between John the Baptist and the Old Testament predictions about him. And so therefore, it was a no-brainer. They received John the Baptist. And Jesus Christ is saying, well, listen, you raised up a charge against me a few moments back. But I got John the Baptist as my witness. Why is it that you're denying me as your Messiah? When all things have pointed towards me, even John the Baptist whom you have received. He didn't come testifying about himself, he come testifying about me. Not that I needed it, Jesus Christ said, because my testimony is true. Nevertheless, you received him, and yet he was talking about me. Let's move on. Look at 36, John 5, 36. Jesus now, he takes the time to point to his teachings and miracles as a witness concerning himself. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given to me, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. No one but the Son of God Himself could have performed the miracles that Jesus Christ performed. We know that miracles took place in the Old Testament, but not on this level, not on this magnitude. Jesus Christ performed millions of miracles. And they saw these miracles. They were witnesses. And Jesus would listen, listen. If you're going to reject me, okay, that's one thing. But you should at least consider twice and at least receive my testimony at least for my very work's sake. Who else can do these things? Has anybody else been able to, to, to do what I've been able to do? I've raised the dead. I've healed the sick. I've opened eyes, blind eyes. I've gained the ability for people who, who were born crippled to, to walk. Some of you were injured, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and I've healed. He even took the time to heal Peter's mother, who was laying sick. Just think about it. John the Baptist was a witness... Jesus Christ's own teachings and his own miracles were witness. But remember the context. We're talking about Romans here. Paul is raising this up as an argument because he's talking to Jewish scoffers who rejected Jesus Christ. And he's saying, he's laying the case out. There's evidence for what we are experiencing here today, Paul the Apostle is saying. I'm clothed with the righteousness of God, and this was in fact predicted. Thousands of years ago. Let's move on. Look at verse 39 
and then 45 and 46. Jesus takes the time, takes the time to point to Moses now as a witness. He says, you search the scriptures, verse 39. You search the scriptures, referring, of course, to the Old Testament, right? Which is all they had. Because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Do not think, verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you had set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. He wrote about me. This is Paul's argument. Not just to the people in Rome who chose to believe in him. But for the naysayers. The people who found it difficult to accept the gospel that was, that was given unto um, Paul the Apostle to preach to the Gentile nations. There was a disturbance. There was a shift there was a pain, there was, a, there was an issue that was taking place in the world back then. Paul the Apostle now finds himself writing to the Romans. And just think of the many people who were getting saved as a result of the gospel being preached. How many of you in school learned about ancient Greece? Socrates and, and, and all Aristotle and all the Greek mythology, Greek, Greek, ancient Greek philosophy. Right? And Zeus and Apollos and all that. This was the setting back then, right there. That was the setting. That, that's what Paul was contending with. Those philosophies. And the Holy Spirit was using Paul the Apostle to stem the tide of wicked ideologies coming against the truth of the gospel. Hallelujah. Because when the philosophies of this world... Make, it, make their way into the church. They bring compromise. It brings compromise. Paul the Apostle said, not on my watch. Not on my watch. Let's move on. The point here in those verses that I read is that every prophet in the Old Testament spoke of the day when a righteousness apart from the law would be made available to mankind through Jesus Christ. But Paul the Apostle was also, let me pres- just put this out there. Paul the Apostle was also making the point that Jesus didn't just show up. He didn't just show up for thousands of years. It was spoken of in the law, after the law, before the law, all the way into the Garden of Eden. Jesus Christ was predicted. It was, it was written about him over and over and over again. In fact, there isn't a passage in the entirety of the Bible the, the Old Testament, that is, because that's what we're talking about. There isn't a passage at all. There is no book that doesn't point to Jesus. And anybody who says to you that there is a book who doesn't point to Jesus, they're wrong. Everything in the, in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. Absolutely everything. Called, they're, they're called types and figures and images and shadows of things to come. And you and I today are recipients This wonderful gospel that was predicted long ago. You and I, think about that for a moment. Next time you feel discouraged, next time you find yourself struggling with something difficult in your life, marital issues, never take take for granted the salvation that you possess today. Never, never. There's absolutely nothing more glorious than the salvation we have in Christ. Nothing. Nothing. Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 22, read with me. Wow. I'm going to pull that clock off the wall. (laughs) Listen, forget about that roast that you got in your oven, please. I want to finish. Look at verse 22. It says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. He's saying, he's not only saying that, That the Old Testament served as a witness concerning Jesus Christ as the Messiah. It also speaks of how we get saved through the Messiah. Just think about it. The Old Testament Testament actually predicted the gospel of grace. Did you know that? The Old Testament predicted the gospel of grace. So the question is, how do we in fact get saved? How do we get saved? We simply look to him in faith. Through repentance, and his his righteousness is then applied to our lives. But at the root of that, 
is that word we discussed already, repentance. What does repentance mean? It means to turn around and about face. It's not a 360 degree turn. It's a 180 degree turn. It's to come to yourself like the prodigal son. And to recognize that without Christ, you're damned to hell. That's what the Bible teaches. But that in Christ, which is the good news we, we just finished talking about, that in Christ, we can have everlasting life. But repentance is required. And I wish to God that every minister on this planet would get back to the basics and begin talking about repentance again. Not as if God's people have not repented, but to get the message across to this new generation. You and I know, what, I don't have to belabor this point with you, but we know that there are a lot of people who do not understand this concept of repentance. They just don't know what it means. Verse 22, the question is, who did he die for? Who did he die for? Some people say the Jews, the mockers, the scoffers there was saying, well, he just died for us. He just died for us, not those Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentile heathens. Paul the Apostle answers that question. He says, for all who believe, Jew and Gentile. Because he concludes that verse by saying there is no distinction. He died for all. I'm going to give you a quick illustration. In the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 through 9. It's up on your screen. Numbers 21, 5 through 9. There was a particular situation that took place in the Old Testament concerning the Hebrew people, the children of God, the Israelites. There was a, day, there was a time when they rebelled. They were, they were mocking Moses, criticizing Moses, and they were talking bad about God. Why is it that we're in this wilderness to die? Why did you bring us out of Egypt only to die in this God-forsaken place? Which is what their perspective was. See, they were, they were conditioned according to the world. They wanted to go right back into slavery. They thought that their freedom was worse than what they were experiencing in Egypt. Go figure. And so as a result of the rebellion, the Bible says that God sent fiery serpents into the camp. And those serpents bit a lot of people. A lot of people died. There were a lot of people sick. So what happened? God, they come running and crying to Moses. And God gives Moses instructions. I want you to craft. I want you to build, construct a, 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 a bronze serpent, and I want you to raise it up on a stick. Raise it up on a pole. And everybody who looks to the serpent will be healed of their sickness, of the snake bite. I got a quote for you concerning that. I think this was Thayer, theologian Thayer, or Sproul, R.C. Sproul, I'm not sure. Forgot to put that down. Is the, the quote is, it took an act of faith in God's plan for anyone to be healed. And the serpent on the stick was a reminder of their sin, which brought about their, their suffering. So the snake brought about their suffering, but it was a typology. It was a figure of things to come in Christ Jesus. Moments back, I said that even the Old Testament predicted the grace of God. And this is a picture of it. So just think, we're going to get to it in a few verses. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But the Old Testament... In the Old Testament, God was actually pointing to the cross and having mercy on them as a result of that. We'll, we'll see that in a moment or two. Hallelujah. So this point here concerning the illustration is that God has opened up an avenue by which everyone can freely be saved. Jew or Gentile, no exception. Verse 22 says there's no distinction. And in context, remember that Paul was still dealing with the scoffers. And he was answering all these questions so that nobody misunderstood the basis of salvation in Christ. I love Paul the Apostle. He was telling them that even the salvation of Gentiles was included in the predictions about salvation in, in Christ. Here's a quote from R.C. Sproul. Did I get that right? Sproul, Sproul. He says, he says, I believe I got it on the screen. Yes, I do. Judaizing, Judaizing heresies in the early church show us that the Gentiles' inclusion as full heirs of the new covenant with the privileges of faithful Israelites was unexpected. They actually didn't expect it. 
So Paul the Apostle is dealing with this stuff. He says the Judaizers' problem was not that they thought Gentiles could not join the people of God. Rather, they could not conceive of Gentiles having an equal status with Jewish, with Jewish believers in the covenant community without adopting the Mosaic law, including circumcision, feast days, and more. Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 14. They perpetuated old divisions, giving uncircumcised Gentile believers a lower status than the circumcised. But as Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, 1 through 6, and many other passages, the fulfillment of the Lord's plan for the nations is that there, there are no racial, social, or spiritual distinctions in the church whatsoever. <clears throat> How many of you remember Galatians, the, 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 the confrontation that took place in Galatians chapter 2 between Paul the Apostle and the Apostle Peter? The Apostle Peter was kind of guilty of this. This distinction, this ideology of the Judaizers. Before Paul the Apostle shows up, Peter was in, in the church and the elders from Jerusalem were expected. What Peter did is that he separated the Jews and the Gentiles, the rich from the poor, in violation of the scripture. Paul the Apostle shows up because he embarrassed himself publicly and did something like that. On that level, he rebuked them publicly. Galatians chapter 2. He, Paul the Apostle rebukes Peter publicly because Peter violated the sanctity of our, this righteousness that we have in Christ Jesus. And we should not be dividing ourselves. Men, women, young, old, rich and poor. There's a church in, not too far from our home in Philadelphia. Geno Jennings. Anybody heard of Geno Jennings? He's got a satellite church out here, which means that they, 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 they video his sermons over there and live. There's an entire large congregation out here in Los Angeles that views him through the television, through a jumble, jumbotron in the church. And Gino Jennings, he separates the congregation. Men on one side, women on the other side. And the women wear a veil. You like to be a part of that church? How about you, Jen? You want to be a part of that church? Mami, tú quieres de esa iglesia. Mm. Can you imagine? It's legalism. There's no basis for any of that in the church. None whatsoever. Acts chapter 10. You don't have to turn there. But it paints a beautiful picture of what I just talked about. Where Peter is up on a roof. It's kind of one of the corrections that, that, that the Holy Spirit put him through. Peter was up on this one particular roof. He was, he was waiting, and all of a sudden he has a vision. He falls asleep and he has a vision three times, multiple times. And the vision was about unclean animals. And then in the dream, the Lord says to him, okay, Peter, rise up and eat. He said, not so, Lord, for I've never put anything unclean in my mouth. Never whatsoever. And boom, he was slapped a couple of times. Do not call unclean or common what I have sanctified. Peter learns this difficult lesson concerning the righteousness of God upon all of mankind. Not just them as Jewish people, but Gentiles as well. Verse 23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is one of those classic verses that every single one of us, I think, are acquainted with. And again, it speaks to our inherent sinful nature. So there are two things that stand out right away. What I just stated, number one, our inherent sinful nature is mentioned again. And number two, that the glory of God refers to His righteous standard, to God's righteous standard. This is the idea, that we have failed God. Because of the fact that we were born in the flesh, that we were children, ultimate children of Adam and Eve. You remember the story. They sinned in Genesis chapter 3. They're, they they're developed this instantaneous, this imperfection. They fell from the grace of God. And that nature, that human nature, was passed on to all of mankind as a result. Even children, even infants. When infants are born, infants are 
inherently sinful. It doesn't mean they've done wrong already. It just simply means they are inherently <clears throat> sinful. And that at a certain point, somebody has to take the time to talk to the child about Jesus so that that child, male or female, learns to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Amen. So the idea is that <clears throat> we have failed God and that we can never measure up to his moral expectations because we are imperfect and his standard is unattainable. Apart from Christ within us, God's righteous standard is unattainable. You can't reach it. You can't acquire it. It'll never happen. We know what happened to Nimrod and his clan in the Old Testament when they tried something like that, right? It failed. It failed miserably. <clears throat> just, I'm watching the time. I want to just skip some of this. <clears throat> so, verse 24. Look at that again. It speaks of good news. We are inherently sinful. That's verse 23. Verse 24, Paul begins this wonderful, wonderful discourse concerning the good news in Christ. It says, and all, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> <clears throat> Boy, <clears throat> and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And are justified <clears throat> by His grace as a gift through the redemption <clears throat> that is in Christ Jesus. And this points to the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Number one, it says that we are justified by His grace. Justification means... <clears throat> to regard as just, to declare righteous, to render righteous, to render innocent, or to set free. Number two, redemption in Christ is what the verse says. Redemption means liberation procured by the payment of a ransom. Liberation procured by the payment of a ransom. This is a wonderful, wonderful picture of what you and I experienced in Christ Jesus. Because of what He endured. Because of His selfless, sinless sacrifice on the cross. He justified us. He redeemed us. He declares us righteous. Free. He set us free. He redeemed us. He paid the price that every single one of us owed to God the Father. As a result of our sin. <clears throat> We're going to get into it a little bit more. <clears throat> so the question that I have for you here now. Is how exactly was this salvation made possible? We spoke about this when I began the message uh, earlier. Many of us just simply had this concept of salvation and that is it. What actually took place at the cross? John fourteen sixteen says... <clears throat> Quotes Jesus as saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, it says, There is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. So this is just to set things up. The salvation is only made possible by way of Jesus Christ. Amen? We fall short. Paul the Apostle talked about that. But Jesus, we give glory to God. For what Jesus Christ actually took the time to accomplish for us. The Bible states thus far that we are inherently sinful. But Jesus Christ died for us on the cross so that we may have life and have it more, have it more abundantly. This is the opposite of condemnation. The opposite of condemnation. Anybody outside the fold of Christendom. Anybody who doesn't know Jesus Christ personally stands condemned. And according to the word of God, the wrath of God abides upon them. That's Ephesians. Right? <clears throat> but here, we have been washed by His grace. Sins, our sins are not covered. Anybody who tells you that our sins are covered is lying. 
You need to run for the hills. Because your sins and mine are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That happened in the Old Testament. The word is expiation. The blood of animals expiated the sins of man. Covered the sins of man. That's not the case here in this one particular passage. The word is propitiation. We're going to get to it in verse 25. It's propitiation. The blood of Jesus cleanses sin as if it were never there. Amen, somebody. I think that's good news. Anybody think it's good news? I don't know about you, but that's, that's great news. Now let's look at that verse. Look with me to verse 25. <clears throat> Time keeps on slipping. Slipping into the future. Watch it. Don't go backsliding now. I saw that face, Ron. I saw your face. That foot tapping on the floor. <clears throat> Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a, say it with me, propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. There was, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. There's a lot of information right here. And listen, I'm going to take my time, please. There's a lot of information here. There are four things to point out right away. Number one, the meaning of the word propitiation. It's translated to mean a ransom paid to appease God. The idea is that Jesus Christ sacrificed himself as an offering to God the Father in order to appease his wrath as well as to satisfy the demands of the law. There are some Bible versions, one off the top of my head, the Revised Standard Version, actually uses the word expiation instead of propitiation. That word expiation actually falls short. Because it sort of gives the impression that Jesus just simply died to expiate, just to forgive us of our sins. No, there's more to the cross than that. That's the argument by Paul the Apostle. Propitiation. We're going to look at, look at a couple more things, but I need you to hear me here. There's more to the cross than just a dying for the sins of mankind. There was a demand by heaven itself, by God himself. Someone holy had to die. God himself, and he knew this according to the word of God, he knew this in eternity past. That mankind would in fact rebel and that he in fact would have to institute a plan to redeem, to buy back his creation. It's found in Genesis 3.15. We talked about that many times before. And if you're new and you haven't heard that from me before, the word is called proto-evangelium. One word. Proto-evangelium, the first messianic prophecy in the Bible, where God early on predicted his own death, that he would have to take on human flesh, that his son, that Jesus Christ, God himself, there's only one God, that God himself would have to become human flesh to die for the sins of mankind, to appease the wrath of God, to satisfy the obligations of the law. We're going to talk about that in Romans 6, Romans 7, where Paul the Apostle takes up the argument concerning the legal system. Because some thought man was sinful because the law was imperfect. Have you heard that before? And it's not true. Man is sinful because man rebelled, but the law is absolutely perfect. So perfect that we cannot attain its righteousness. That's why Jesus Christ had to die, fulfill every jot and every tittle. Of the legal system so that we can in turn receive his righteousness. It's deep theology, right? I told you it would be. Some of you are saying, what did he, what did he just say there? Like, really? So, <clears throat> listen to this concerning propitiation. And I may have to stop one verse short. One and a half verses short. I'm looking at the time. But I got to give you this at least. Also, propitiation is a word that is found throughout the entire Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible, right? Which means mercy seat. Propitiation means mercy seat. And the idea is that on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest will enter into the most holy place and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, on the propitiation of the Ark of the 
covenant. I'm going to stop right there and I want to impact this just for a few minutes. If I don't do anything else, I have to do this. Some of you may not necessarily believe what I'm going to tell you right now. But it's irrefutable. Put a search on it. An extensive search. And you're going to find a lot of evidence to prove, to validate this claim that I'm going to make this morning. How many of you have learned that the Ark of the Covenant has been located? Has been located. The Ark of the Covenant has been located. It's, you, you ask the, 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 the main rabbis in Israel, they'll tell you. They are in fact in possession of the Ark of the Covenant. It hasn't been removed from where they found it. Because according to the rabbis, angels gave them instructions not to move the ark. But here's the point. Remember, the word propitiation is there for a reason. It's not an accident. It means mercy seat. It's a noun. It's not about a process. It's a noun. It's about a thing. The mercy seat is the cover, the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. Where the angels were, their wings touched each other and the angels faced each other. That's the mercy seat. How many of you know... That in the Old Testament, whenever the high priest will go into the most holy place once a year, that the blood of animals was only sprinkled on the eastern side of the mercy seat. Did you know that? Only on the eastern side of the mercy seat. That according to the Talmud, that the western side of the mercy seat, the left side, was reserved for the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it's spoken of in the Talmud. Right? So, get this. The Ark of the Covenant was located... Blood, some black stuff was scraped off the eastern side of the believers, Christians, not Jewish, not unsaved, but believers scraped this black substance off the eastern side of the mercy seat and they took it to Tel Aviv to analyze. Guess what they find? The blood was still alive. After 2,000 plus years, it was still alive. And that it contained 24 chromosomes. How many of you know that when blood is dead, you cannot... You cannot analyze for chromosomes. You can do so for DNA, but not chromosomes. It was still alive. They found 24 chromosomes. 23 autosomes for the mother. And one Y for the supernatural father. The scientists in the laboratory in Tel Aviv, they freaked out. They didn't know what to do, what to say. They're screaming, hooping and hollering, and many of them gave themselves to Jesus Christ. Because the evidence was right there in front of them. When asked, they asked the question, whose blood is this? They were hysterical. You can look this up easily. They were hysterical. And when asked about the blood, the person who actually did the scraping of the blood, a Christian, said, this is the blood of your Messiah. This is the blood of your Jesus. And the blood was sprinkled only on the East, the western side of the Ark of the Covenant. I know what you're thinking. How'd the blood get there? How many of you ever heard of Jeremiah's grotto? I gotta finish with this. Jeremiah's apartment. Jeremiah's grotto. We have found the location where the crucifixion actually took place. They found a hole in the ground with a concrete cap on it. And when it was removed, there was a crack down the front of it. When they looked to the east and to the west, they found other holes just like it. And it's Golgotha. It's undeniable right there. When they searched, they realized that there was this crack. And you know that the Bible says that when Jesus, when he died, when when he died, the rocks were rent. Remember that? The earth shook. Cracking the rock whereon he was crucified. And Jeremiah's grotto was is located directly beneath it. You do know that under Nebuchadnezzar, that's when the Ark of the Covenant mysteriously disappeared, right? The last person who had it was Jeremiah. And it never left Jerusalem. It never left Jerusalem. So this crack, which is situ- which is, goes down the rock from the crucifixion site, all the way down into that chamber underneath, there's a maze. You can, look at, you can look at all those pictures online. There's a maze. And so there was this, they discovered a black, a, uh, a concrete box directly underneath the crack. When they went into this chamber, they, they noticed that there was a stain on the ceiling. When they scraped that, they realized that that was the, that was the blood of Christ itself. And directly underneath that crack was a lid, a concrete box, 
with a lid on top of it, concrete lid that was broken in half. And when they looked inside of it, they discovered the Ark of the Covenant. And that box was situated in such a way over to where the blood came down directly onto the western side of that mercy seat, of the propitiation. I know it's hard to believe because you've never heard it before. But I challenge you to refute it. I challenge you to refute it. It was necessary for Jesus to shed his blood and to ratify the new covenant in his grace by spilling his blood on that mercy seat. It's right there. Romans 3.25. It means, it means mercy seat. It means mercy seat. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for your truth. And I think today as your children, we have a, we have a task ahead of us. We have to refute, perhaps if possible, some of the things that were said here today. I pray, Lord God, that you challenge us by your Holy Spirit to search the scriptures. To see if the things indeed that were said here today are written in the word of God. And if they can be validated by external authorities or sources. I pray, Father God, that you give us an insatiable thirst, Lord God. To consider these things. To prove these things. To search it out, Lord God. So that we can give you glory and honor for everything that you've accomplished for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for the work of the cross. I thank you so much for, your, for the brokenness of Christ's physical body, his flesh, though no bone was broken. I thank you so much for that, that punishment that was hurled upon him because it was necessary to usher in the new covenant. In the blood of Jesus Christ. I thank you so much for the righteousness that we are able to experience today, Lord God. As a result of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that we don't have to attempt to work our way into heaven. There is no system of works anymore. Other than the working of faith. The exercising of our faith. Because we are saved. I pray you strengthen your people here today, Lord God. I pray you anoint your people here today. I pray that you deliver your people here today because some of us are really struggling with these things. I pray that you equip us, that you empower us, that you encourage us here today, Lord God. In the same way Joshua was standing up on a mountain trying to decide whether to run down this mountain because you gave him instructions to, to possess the promised land. And you appeared before him in the form of an angel and identified yourself as a captain of the armies of the Lord. You encouraged him. I pray that you encourage us today as well, Lord God. That we may be responsible as children of the Most High God. That we may do our due diligence. That we may test ourselves to see if indeed we are in the faith. And that you may encourage us, Father God, to live out the truth of the Word of God. All the days of our life. And to be intentional, Lord God, with our worship. We love you today, Father. We praise you today. Today we give you all the honor and the glory. In all of these things. And then some. We pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people say. Amen. Why don't you stand with me as we close.
seconds I just want you to know that we ha- I've had a conversation with uh, some of the leadership of the church and we're going to have studies on Wednesdays so please um, spread the word we will be meeting on Wednesdays my wife is here we're going to be here for the next three weeks there will be child care we will be ministering to your children please don't please come okay don't stay home um, amen bow your heads with me let us pray father thank you thank you father thank you so much May you bless us as we prepare to go. May you fill us. May you encourage us. May you strengthen us. May you lead us, guide us. We need you in our lives, Father. We know that without you, we are nothing. But today we've learned the good news. At least we've reviewed the good news that is in Christ Jesus. Thank you so much for that blood that was shed for us so long ago. That we may be sinless. That we may be made righteous in the sight of God. Father, we love you. We bless your holy name. May you bless your people as they go, Lord God. May you bless the families that are represented here. May you bless those who do not know you that are represented here. Those who are sick that are represented here. Those who who are vacationing. Father, may you bless our families. May you reach into their lives. May you transform their lives. We give you the glory. We give you the honor. We give you the praise. These things we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people say, Amen.